Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, John Verveke. John is a lecturer at University of Toronto, author of the book Zombies in Western Culture, and creator of the YouTube series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's start with sort of a, a brief introduction. As, as a way to do that, I'll ask, when you look back at the work that you've been doing the past decade plus, how would you sort of describe the thread that underlies the work? Or, or what's the thread you, you, keep, you keep pulling? Or what, what are you searching for or, or, or trying to do with your work? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think that's the, the, the most appropriate question. And it's a thread that connects two things together that haven't really been connected that well together until recently. And that's the connection between cognitive science and spirituality. But that is a connection that increasingly more and more people are pursuing. So on the science side, I basically study using a cognitive scientific framework. Uh, the core of my work is work on the nature of general intelligence, and that centers on a, a process I call relevance realization. And then I use that to t- talk about related phenomena, such as insight, the flow experience, aspects of consciousness, altered states of consciousness. So that's on one side. But I then try to integrate all of that together, I hope, in a systematic fashion, uh, so that I can talk about this very nebulous but very important construct of meaning that human beings are willing, very willing to die for and will uh, will alter most of their identity and their world uh, in order to try and enhance this, this experience of meaning. The use of the word meaning, of course, is a, uh, a metaphor. I'm trying to get at, well, what is, what is it they're actually talking about? And then once you do that, and once you start talking about, you know, consciousness, altered states of consciousness, flow state, insight, mystical experience, uh, the adaptive connection to reality through general intelligence, processes of self-deception, self-destructive behavior, you're starting to get into some very deeply existential and transformative issues that, for lack of a better word, have typically been labeled uh, spirituality. I don't particularly like that word, but we don't have an alternative one right now to do the work. So I'm, I'm using it kind of pro tem uh, because it's such a nebulous term, right? And so the reason I'm doing that is because... I think the reason why there's an increasing interest on the connection between cognitive science and spirituality is precisely because this issue of meaning is coming into crisis in our culture. We are finding that people are finding it increasingly difficult to get a sense of meaning in their life. There's a profound sense of sort of a gnawing nihilism uh, that many people are confronting on a more daily basis. There's other symptoms that are expressing itself, you know, an increasing suicide. Uh, amongst uh, the next generation, children, um, and not all of this suicide is being driven primarily uh, via clinical depression. Some of it's just from a straight sort of existential crisis, which is kind of a new phenomenon. Um, you get, you know, massive increases in loneliness. You're getting uh, the rises of addiction. You're getting the rise of, you know, the virtual exodus. People are leaving reality to pursue, you know, an ersatz existence uh, within the virtual domain. You get the rise of a lot of new pseudo-religious ideologies and movements, but also you see positive factors. You see, you know, the mindfulness revolution. You see people 
uh, pursuing authentic discourse, people trying to uh, see if there's ways of reformulating uh, more established uh, religious frameworks to make them more responsive to this crisis. So all of this symptomology, and like I say, the increasing interest in, in meaning, you get the rise of ancient philosophical traditions like Stoicism are making a huge comeback precisely because people are trying to come up with a way of addressing this core issue. How do I situate a needed spirituality, meaning a way, a systematic way of life and a set of practices by which I can cultivate meaning, wisdom, self-transcendence, self-transformation, and situate that within a scientific worldview in a way that can be regarded as intellectually respectable and existentially legitimate. So that's basically the thread that just ties all my work together. Yeah, we're going to get into a bunch of that. But first, I'll ask, sort of looking forward, what are the biggest questions that you are currently wrestling with in, in your research and study that you, that you haven't yet figured out yet? And we collectively haven't figured out yet and that you hope in the next few years you, you will have some some clarity on that you could also bring into to the work that you just described. Well, it depends what you mean by don't have it figured out. I don't think we have any of this figured out. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm a scientist. I think uh, we have made good, plausible progress on getting, but still at a very abstract level, tied to some specifics, to specific exemplars, perhaps within uh, machine learning. But I think we're, we're making some headway on sort of the core of intelligence. I think, although many people will regard this as very contentious, and I'm acknowledging that, I think we're starting to make progress towards uh, the functionality of consciousness. And I think that's giving us some preliminary but important insight into uh, the nature of consciousness. I think much more has to be done on much more empirical work. There's increasingly more done on it, but just on what is it people are looking for when they're looking for meaning in life. I'm working with uh, some of my RAs on that uh, that question right now, trying to, to make progress. I'm working with a bunch of really excellent people uh, headed by Igor Grossman on, on trying to get to some consensus from the psychological and cognitive scientific community, even the neuroscience, uh, what wisdom is. So that's still, that's still something that's in progress. I suppose some of the deeper issues, uh, I mean, there's even philosophical issues. How does all of this framework sit with respect to some of the fundamental metaphysics and ontology of the naturalism that is presupposed by the scientific worldview? Now, for many people, that would sound like yawn. I don't care about that. But actually, it turns out people do. They just don't recognize how they care about it. They care about it insofar as, you know, here's, here's an example. One of the things that sort of runs as an undercurrent in our culture is we have a scientific worldview that has no good, right, that can generate all these excellent scientific explanations of everything except how we go about doing science and generating scientific explanation. So science itself and us as the creators of science don't actually sit comfortably in any way within the scientific worldview, and that's deeply problematic. And, and that means that you know, there is this chasm between our lived experience and our best account of the ontological structure of the world. And I suspect, given some of the really exciting work that I'm seeing done, is that we're going to see some significant, I don't know, insights, innovations in how we try and tackle those deeper questions. The old dichotomies of empiricism versus 
right? Romanticism and rationalism versus empiricism and subjectivism versus object. All of these, I think, are under serious critique right now. And I suspect that they are going to go through a very significant revision as we try and marshal the resources we need in order to address the meaning crisis. Because here's the issue. I, do, I think it's not only existential uh, exigent, because, you know, because people are suffering from the meaning crisis in pervasive and, and sometimes very profound ways. Look, the, the meaning crisis is wrapped up with the, the tremendous self-deceptive nature of our machinery, the perennial problems of despair that we fall into. We haven't constituted institutions and traditions for affording people the cultivation of the wisdom that addresses these perennial problems. So that that's going to get increasingly difficult. But what that does is as you're beset by this self-deceptive, self-destructive machinery, your capacity to deal with the really urgent problems that we're facing in the world right now you know, imminent ecological problems, increasing socioeconomic disparity, right, migration issues. There's all kinds of stuff that we are trying to wrestle with. And if we are in meaning scarcity and under tremendous cognitive load from pervasive self-deceptive and self-destructive behavior, our capacity to address these problems is seriously, seriously truncated and uh, I think almost disabled. And so I think for that those reasons, both for an inherent reason and uh, for the causal effect the meaning crisis has on other problems. we got to address this problem like now, like now. And what does it mean to address it? It means to to understand h- how it occurred? Sure. What it so, so one of the, I mean, one of the big things I do within the work on intelligence is how important, so, which is something people generally don't pay too much attention to. This is one of the ways in which rationality is distinct from intelligence. But people pay a lot of attention to the product of their cognition and the solution to their problems. They don't pay very much attention to the process and how they're framing and formulating the problem. So intelligent people just sort of see through their framing and try to get a solution, which is great. Rational people uh, care about the process because they care about the poss- real possibility of self-deception in that process. And they tend to, and, and if they also care about how they're formulating the problem, that tends to make them much more insightful. So formulating the problem well, getting a very clear historical understanding and scientific understanding of how did we get, what's the genealogy of the meaning crisis, how did we get there, how is our cognitive machinery operating within meaning cultivation, and also how is it dysfunctional within the experience of meaning loss. Those are really, really important. But from that, from that historical analysis and scientific analysis and the way that they can hopefully speak to each other in a mutually affording fashion, the hope is to see what practices can we salvage and what new practices can we engineer and how can we curate and shepherd them together so that we can give people the tools to address these perennial problems so that it becomes a, a legitimate project with, for them to enhance their sense of connectedness to themselves, to each other, to the world, to cultivate wisdom, right? to have meaningful experiences of self-transcendence that are not treated as anomalous or weird or identity-threatening, but can be integrated into a process of you know, deep growth and self-transformation. That's what it means to awaken from the meaning crisis. What you're, um, you're talking about, Really, the, the how we think versus not just the what we think. Very much. I mean, that's the key distinction between wisdom and knowledge, right? Uh, so knowledge is basically what we think. Wisdom is uh, how we think and 
what that means is grasping the significance of what we think and also knowing if it's appropriate to restructure the significance of what we know such that we can better afford um, overcoming foolishness and uh, you know enhancing flourishing. And, and you called it awakening from the meaning crisis, not solving out the you know yeah. solving kind of the equation to meaning or something. It is very deliberate verb choice. Yes, yeah, very much because part of part of what I argue, and so I, I can't, I don't have time right here now to give the full argument, but part of what I argue is that we, that what the cognitive science is increasingly showing, especially uh, what I would call 4E cognizant or third generation cognizant is that there are four kinds of knowing. Uh, there's propositional knowing, which is the, you know, the kind of knowing in which we assert and believe propositions, like that, uh, you know, uh, we have, we live in a heliocentric solar system or something like that. That's a proposition that you know. But there's also procedural knowing, which is knowing how to do things, knowing how to catch a ball. And this isn't about beliefs. This is about skills. Right? And it's not right to talk about whether or not a skill is true or false. Is your skill about riding a bike true or false? That doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. What you want to say, is it powerful or not? So the, the, the realness of propositions comes through in their truth, but the realness of this, our skills comes through in the power that they afford us. But your procedural ability, your ability to learn and exercise skills depends on your situational awareness, your perspectival knowing, your knowing this is this is like what your your salience landscape right now what things are being foregrounded what background how things are salient and standing out for you how that's kind of shit so what it's like to be here right now right that situational awareness that's your perspectival knowing and we're already getting good at you know it's not so much power there or truth and we already know this like i said because some of the work done through virtual realities and so on the, the standard of realness there is the standard of presence. When you feel present, when you have that here nowness, that's when you go, Oh, this is a really great virtual reality, right? Or I'm, you know, or the people working with the rovers on Mars, I'm really on Mars right now, you know, and that sort of thing. So that's the perspectival knowing. That's why, of course, altered states of consciousness can have such a huge impact on your judgments about what's real because people get this tremendous sense of presence, depth. Uh, to realness. And then finally, there's participatory knowing because your situational awareness is ultimately dependent on how the dynamics of your embodied brain here, you know, are causally and adaptively coupled to the environment so that there's a mutual fittedness, a, a basic kind of niche construction uh, so that you can reliably assume and assign identities. Like you're interviewing me and I'm somebody being interviewed and there's your computer in front of you. Like all of this is all there ready to go. And that's right. And you know, that gets lost, for example, in culture shock. When you go to another culture and the participatory knowing the agent or Alina relationship is skewed for you, you still, of course, right. You have all of your skills and your beliefs and you're still generating perspectives, but it's not making any sense because your situational awareness isn't working because it's not actually grounded in your participatory knowing. And so the reason why I say awakening from the meaning crisis is the meaning that people are talking about when they're talking about the meaninglessness they're experiencing and absurdity and despair is not so much semantic meaning. It's right. It's kind of a futility. They don't have their skills. They feel disempowered. 
It's a lack that there's an absence or an absurdity. Their perspectival knowing isn't gelling. And ultimately, there's a deep sense of alienation, disconnectedness. They don't have the participatory knowing. So that tells you where, you know, most of the meaning making is being done. It's being done at the participatory and the perspectival and the procedural level. And so we, part of what we need to do is to have practices that do not just address our beliefs. We have enough practices that address our beliefs and we fight and argue and ideologize right? And we have all these ideologies, we've got all this going on about our beliefs. Great. And we have science, which is great for trying to get us towards, you know, the, the best set of beliefs, etc. What we don't have and what we've lost, and we can see this in comparison to our own past or to other cultures, is sets of practices for really helping people access those three remaining kinds of knowing in a deeply integrated and aligned fashion, so that they can in an embodied and embedded manner, really rejuvenate and maybe accentuate those kinds of knowings and the kinds of connectedness that they afford. And, you know, we were talking about the kinds of knowing, you know, the audience here is is a technology audience. Some of that audience is building things like virtual reality. (laughs) Yes, Uh, yes. What do you wish that the creators of, of things, you know, like the next virtual reality platforms or even, you know, the platforms that we engage with you know, all the time, Facebook, et cetera, that, that help create some of these identities. What, what do you wish that they better knew or better understood as, as they were designing these, these platforms that help us you know, relate to each other in, in different ways? It, what would you say about that? Well, what I would say about that is, well, a, a couple of things. But, but perhaps the first one is try to open up what goals you want the technology to be achieving right? Uh, verisimilitude and sort of maximizing the amount of information that can flow should not be, you know, the sole criteria uh, by which you're evaluating the efficacy of your technology, for example. So, like, if you take a look at virtual world, uh, you know, people will experience much more presence in things that are not necessarily very, have very much verisimilitude, like Tetris, in comparison to other worlds that seem much more, you know, like the real world, precisely because there's a set of characteristics in the in the in the first example that brings them into the flow state, taps into you know these other these other kinds of knowing and processing in very powerful ways, and we should be thinking about the fact that the technology could be more responsive to those other kinds of knowing. I'm not. I'm not. A technologist. I don't know what that would mean from an engineering standpoint, but what it means, for for example, is how could we make it so that people could more re- reliably talk to each other in groups, and there could be a much more fluid and fluent coding of information other than just sort of you know talking heads, uh, because most of uh, the communication that's going on uh, between people that will give them that sense of connectedness is often taking place in terms of gesture, body posture, uh, a bunch of other things. Also, who I'm looking at other than the person that's talking is really, really important in social circumstances. So what I'm saying is, right, that I think that needs to be paid a lot more attention to. I, I think that there should be, well, this is a, just a general recommendation, and I have a talk out on this. 
we're concentrating a lot of attention, and I understand why, our artificial intelligence. But, you know, we've got now lots of really good experimental evidence. And it's increasing, and it's reliable, and it's not suffering the replication crisis or any of that stuff, right? Then intelligence is only weakly predictive of rationality. So it's about a 0.3 correlation. You know, it only counts for about, you know, 0.3 of the variance, which means there is no contradiction in something being highly, highly intelligent and being highly, highly irrational. And as, and I would predict this, as we make all of these processors more and more artificially, generally intelligent, we are going to find, because this is what we know from all the existing cases of autonomous intelligence, the very machinery that makes you intelligent, so the very same machinery that's driving your self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And so as we make these machines, as we're going to have to, more and more self-organizing, more and more right, self-defining, more and more multiple, you know, in- integrating different kinds of machines together, you know, neural networks and more standard computational machines. As we more and more emulate the kind of things, the kinds of structural designs that have made us so adaptive, it is therefore highly likely that as those machines become more intelligent, like us, that will not mean that they will become more and more rational automatically. We have the real capacity to make highly intelligent and highly self-deceptive, self-destructive beings. And I think that is something that would not only be immoral to them, but immoral to us, which means the following. We, of course, in our design of artificial intelligence, have ready-made templates against which to test our models of artificial intelligence. We have us because we're very autonomously intelligent. But that is not the case for how many people are reliably rational or even, dare say it, reliably wise. And so if we do not take more time to, and this is an existential project, you can't do this by reading. You have to do this by coming. You have to become more rational. You have to become more wise. We have to create more and more rationality and wisdom, both so that we can better help these machines transition to rationality and wisdom, and also so that we have reliable and understood templates against which we can test such endeavors. So I would say to the technologists, there's a cultural change, I think. I'm not predicting that it's coming. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it needs to happen. It really needs to happen. Thinking because of your intelligence that that means that you're rational is a pretty good predictor that you're not very rational, by the way. Okay, just, just to be provocative. How do we become more rational? How do we become more wise uh, as, a, as a culture? What are the biggest bottlenecks holding us back there, rate, rate limiters? Or how, how do we? Well, well, first of all, let's go back to what we talked about earlier, right? Intelligence is, you know, intelligence is about getting to the answer, getting to the product, right? Uh, and, and rationality, and this is what, one of the things that Keith Stanovich has emphasized, is about learning to pay attention and value the process. Notice the degradation of the attention paid to the process through our culture, even our political process. You know, it used to be, and I'm not taking a side here, I'm really not, because I know the research on taking a side and is, be, is correlated with very poor cognitive flexibility, which is correlated, by the way, with low rationality. But look at how, you know, it used to be people were committed to the process of democracy. And there was an allegiance above and beyond significantly to the value of the democracy and the value of debate. And the idea 
that we were engaged in opponent processing where there was checks and balances and we were mutually correcting of each other and there was therefore mutual respect and even gratitude uh, for the opposition. But that has now become contempt and fear and adversarial. And I think increasingly people don't actually value democracy other than as an instrument to what they truly value, which is their particular side uh, winning. And not just winning, we've even passed beyond that, like devastating and destroying the opposition. So that's at the cultural level, but you can see it more and more in the individual cognitive level, because people, we know here, so under conditions of scarcity, scarcity of resources, scarcity of time, right? People's cognition becomes inflexible. They pay less attention to the processing. They try to go more short-term, get immediate gains. So as people are suffering from a meaning scarcity and a temporal scarcity, kind of a time culture famine, right? Um, we are we are generally becoming less and less uh, oriented towards stepping back um, and this careful kind of reflection. So what we need, and what the research is, I, I would say, pointing towards, is we need to cultivate uh, particular cognitive styles at all for all four kinds of knowing that I mentioned that get us to step back and pay attention in various ways. We want, and, and we have to be careful about this because there's ways in which this is being trivialized in and commodified in the current market, but we need a, we need a deep form of mindfulness as opposed to what's being called mic mindfulness because we need to pay better attention to how we're paying attention. We need to step back and learn what are we finding salient and what are the patterns of intelligibility by which we are framing reality. Uh, we need to pay attention to the, which, and this is why stoicism is so important. We need to pay attention to that process of co-identification. Most of the time, we're not paying attention to the identities we're assuming and the identities we're assigning other than in a very superficial, and I mean this in a critical fashion, political manner. We're not paying attention to it in a way that actually affords transformative intervention. We need to cultivate active open-mindedness, which is a process by which we learn about all the cognitive biases, confirmation bias, my side bias, anchoring bias, representative bias, all of these things. Right? And, and we learn how to sensitize ourselves to them in our behavior so we can catch them and notice them and then actively counteract them. So next time you're on the internet, don't just look for information that confirms your belief. Try and find people that are generating ideas and evidence that disconfirms some belief that you consider important or worthwhile for discussing. That's an example. You also need to train your perspectival knowing, learning to take the perspective of other people. So we have some good evidence from the past, uh, the ancient wisdom traditions, good ideas from sports psychology about how to internalize the perspective of other people. But here's what something you can start doing right now. This comes from Igor Grossman's work. When you're confronted with a serious problem, don't look at it automatically and unconsciously from just the first-person perspective. Redescribe the problem that you're having so much difficulty with from a third-person perspective. You'll find that you often realize bias and have insights that you do not normally have from a first-person perspective. And then I suppose, most of all, you want to learn, like, what are the strengths and weaknesses of each one of these kinds of practices? And you want to put them together in an, a self-organizing system, what I often call an ecology practice, so that their strengths and weaknesses complement right, each other. They act as checks and balances on each other. 
So for example, mindfulness is very good for shutting off your inferential processing, whereas active open-mindedness is very good for enhancing it. And so they work in not an adversarial, but in an opponent processing fashion. You need to learn an overarching way of life that coordinates this. And you need to have that, therefore, a, a set of practices that get you involved with a community of people that are also pursuing wisdom. Uh, because getting into a community that can make use of the power of distributed cognition and collective intelligence to vet and to venture with these practices and these ecologies and practices is something that's deeply needed as well. Yeah. Last Silicon Valley related question, just to, to close the loop there. For earlier, you talked about, you know, uh, disconnectedness that we were feeling. You, you talked about you know, meaning crisis. We'll get into it deeper, but if all the, the CEOs of the big, you know, social platforms were, were sitting here and saying, Hey, John, what, what is something we could change or edit or add? that would help address certain, you know, increased disconnectedness that some people feel using our platforms or generally do less bad work as it relates to the meaning crisis or, or try to improve things. What, what's something you, you'd recommend to the people who create the platforms by which we, you know, relate to each other in many ways? Well, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I could make a recommendation sort of for the web or the internet as a whole. I don't think because it's, it's so multifunctional. It's doing so many different things. But what we need is we need platforms that give a priority uh, to uh, rational discourse and to allowing people to do things like authentic relating or something like what Guy Sensdok does with circling, uh, those kinds of practices, so that people can get access to and start to create communities and then tied to that, it would help if we had ways of better curating and giving people access to educational courses that are designed to give people education in how to be more rational, how to be more wise. It would be great if we had platforms so that these emergent communities could create sort of codes of conduct and the normative principles they want to uh, exercise something like a wiki format so that they be, could be collectively writing it together in, in a much more online and collective fashion. Uh, so because people need to create, you know, shared standards by which they're going to engage in these processes, but they're very wary of giving that over to established organizations. And there I would, and they, I think they should also be, they're not quite as, but they should be just as wary of doing this in an autodidactic or a completely bottom-up ad hoc fashion. And so platforms that give a priority for meaning-making as opposed to just communication, for people doing community creation as opposed to just networking, this is something that it's going to, it's going to, uh, you know, be needed. I would even predict it's going to be, uh, I guess I would, is this the right thing to say? It'd be very profitable for people to get into it. Look, you know, when I started my series, you know, people said, you know, you're doing an hour long lecture at a time and you're doing 50 of these. Oh, my gosh. People can only hang in for 10, 50. And, all, and that just hasn't been true. That just has not been true. Right. The number of people that want to hang in and really pursue this and have started up their own channels in response to it and these long forum dialogues and discussion in which careful reflection and humility and cooperation 
you know, with, within, you know, critical discussion and debate are coming to the fore. I mean, that there's just evidence that, that there is, there is an increasing number of people that are hungering, uh, for what we used to have in our culture and they want to meet other people. They want not only a platform. This is what I'm trying to say. They, they want a structure and those aren't the same thing. It's interesting. I mean, a debate we have in technology is how much do we just, you know, quote, you know, be neutral, you know, create the platform and let people do what they do versus shade and guide or, or have editorial. And of course, you know, when you create platform, you're always shading and guiding in, in some uh, different way. Yes. Yeah. And, that, that, and that's what I said. And so we need normative standards other than efficiency, right? Because again, I'm not going to tell people what to do with their property. That's not what, but if you're asking me if people want to use the technology to address this very real issue that is exacerbating these other very ish, real issues, then this is the advice I'm giving. So I want that understood. That's the, that's the context in which I'm giving this advice. I'm not telling it, you know, you know, people what to do individually. That's, that, that, uh, that's too dictatorial. But what I'm saying is we have an opportunity and a need right now to, you know, use these emerging technologies to enhance human rationality, enhance human wisdom, enhance community making, enhance the access to distributed cognition, enhance the, cre- the, the shared creation of new psychotechnologies, new ecologies of practices. We have the real opportunity to do that now, and we have the very real need to do it now. And I would predict that somebody who can figure out how to match that opportunity to that need and do it well, I think they will they will succeed in that project. It is interesting. You do some of the things that are exacerbating some of these, these problems are well, the, these platforms um, focus on engagement, or that that's the metric which they prioritize. And when you focus on engagement, you know the more controversy or or uh, confrontation, yeah. the better. And then also there is there is a sort of thesis in, in the valley of you want to build products that attack the sins, the you know the seven sins. And so if you if you attack or if you satiate any one of those, you'll have a sustainable product and you know, it'd probably be more productive or more constructive long-term to have a different way of orienting, you know, the, the ways in which you are building products. So maybe you're, instead of measuring engagement, you're measuring sort of how do you feel using this product and, you know, retro- retroactively, does it make you feel good? Do you, you know. Even moving beyond that. So let's talk about that because let's talk about, you know, how distinct meaning is from the other sins and how distinct it even is from feeling good, you know, and, that, this is a good way to talk about it. Those are the metrics and it's sort of the, the efficiency by which you give people, right, um, satisfaction of sort of greed and lust and, you know, a power over others and, you know, the, the seven deadly sins and all that sort of stuff. And also the, the degree to which you're making people feel good, uh, sort of subjective well-being. That, you know, that's it. But, but that's just not true. I mean, again, let me give you an example of things that, we've got pretty good evidence for and that people do and they've been doing for reliably for a very long time. People have children. You know what really reduces your subjective well-being, your longevity, your financial situation, your personal comfort, your sleep, your sex life? All of these things reliably get, you know, really hammered hard when you have a child. Why do people do it? Because they give up all those things because of what a child does do. It increases meaning in life. People feel that their lives have become more meaningful, more real, deeper, 
more significant. They're connected to something beyond their own ego. So notice how people for generations, and thank God because we wouldn't be here if they hadn't, right, are willing to sacrifice all those other things reliably in order to increase meaning in life. That tells you something that people are missing. Yeah. This is a good segue. Earlier you mentioned that, you know, or, or implied sort of that it's sort of getting worse, that some of these existential crises are, are, are yep. fairly new. How new are these? Uh, you know, can you trace sort of the evolution of, of how, how it's getting worse and, and when it started to get worse and, and why? What, what's sort of the, the root of it? <laughs> well, that's a long argument. <laughs> you, you, you know, if you're watching my series, I, I take, you know, uh, 25 hours. hours to do the, the history. Um, so there's, like I said, let's, let's take a look at the, let's take a look at something very quickly. There's perennial problems. Uh, let, let's take a bias. You know, uh, the representative bias or the availability bias. These are ways people judge probability. Okay. So for example, I'll judge something as more probable if it's sort of a very prototypical event, right? Or availability. I'll judge something as very probable if I can easily imagine it happening. And so that bias kicks in. This is one of my standard examples. That bias kicks in when you take your friend to the airport because when a plane crashes, Right. That's super salient. And it's described as a disaster or a tragedy. It's highly representative. And of course, it's very easy for your homo erectus brain to imagine a big thing of metal falling to the earth. So for you, it's highly probable that this plane is going to crash. So you say you basically say all these euphemisms to your loved one when they're at the airport, like, you know, have a safe trip. Text me when you're there. And they're all just ways of saying, don't die. Don't die. Please don't die. Right, because your availability and representative heuristics are saying, "Oh no, they're getting on a plane," and then you turn and get back in your car without thinking about the fact that it's the North American death machine. Right now, you say, "Well, I just won't do that." Here's the problem: Why does your brain use the availability and representative bias? Because, right, if you tried to calculate all of the probabilities using formal probability theory, that would be combinatorial explosive. That's intractable. So your brain has to use what the, one of the ways in which your brain is intelligent, the way it doesn't get overloaded with too much information, the way it makes good use of its limited computational resources and time is by using these heuristic processes. So notice what I'm showing you. The indispensable processes that make you intelligent are the exact same processes that make you prey to self-deceptive behavior. So that means that it is peren- there are perennial problems that human beings face, that co- these self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns. And the fact that our cognition is highly, recursively, in such a complex fashion, self-organizing, means that all these uh, intelligent adaptive processes can also self-organize the self-deception in highly recursive and powerful ways that are very resistant to change. That's why people that go into therapy, they know that they shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. They have the correct propositional knowledge, but they don't know how to change. They don't know what it would be like to change. They don't know who they're going to be when they change. They can't access the other kinds of knowing. So these are perennial problems that people have had. Now, what typically we do is we build sets of you know, wisdom practices broadly construed, sets of practices that are not designed to make us money, not designed to get us food, not designed to get us sex, but we're primarily designed to deal with all this self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, right? 
And then what we do is we take those sets of practices and we set them within a worldview that makes sense of them and legitimates them and valorizes them. The problem is that worldview started, you know, and it was very well constructed from the axial age on, but around, you know, the 11th and 12th century, for a lot of historical reasons, it starts to degrade. And we start to get locked into propositional thinking. We start to lose these access. We have the Protestant Reformation. It shuts down the wisdom institutions, the monasteries, right? Gets people isolated as individuals within their own cognition, cuts them off from traditions, cuts them off from your own wisdom and mystical traditions, traditions of self-transcendence within the West. We get the scientific revolution uh, emerges in which we have this powerful way of describing within which Right. We, we have ways of generating truth without any way of accounting for the meaning on which truth depends and, and the agency of, uh, and of meaning making upon which the meaning depends. Like I said, we don't we're, we're not at home within that worldview. And people started to know this, notice this a long time ago, and they, there's been repeated efforts to try and address it. But what happens right, is you get. Oh, I don't want to be oversimplistic. But you, you get, you get, first of all, you get the rise of increasingly secular attempts to address meaning making. You get these totalitarian ideologies and they drench the world with blood. And then you have the, the, the sort of progressive undermining, uh, because of the fragmentation of religion under the Protestant Reformation and the challenge of the religious view from the scientific, uh, worldview. You, you get the, the progressive undermining of sort of a religious worldview. So we lose the religious worldview as a shared cultural view. We, right. And then, and then we don't fit within it. We lose our sapiential practices. We lose our sapiential traditions. It, the, the secular political alternatives drench the world in blood. So now we're, we're in this situation where we keep, most people feel they can't go back to established religions because for all these historical reasons, I've rushed through very quickly, right? They find their, they, don't believe in any political solution because of the way, you know, these political ideologies have traumatized us by drenching the world in blood. And so they feel like there's nowhere to go. These are the two sets of answers. Religious answer, no, that's not for me. That's moribund or passe or eh, right? Or political, no, no, that's not going to work. And so you're trapped. And then what you have is you have, you know, the degradation of the shorter term narratives that helped people for a while. We had sort of the American dream narrative that's now collapsing. And then we had, well, we have the social media, but that's turning out to have this horrendous capacity to just magnify self-deception and amplify it in titanic waves of bullshit and, you know, adversarial, arrogant discourse. And so people are feeling increasingly bereft. And as, as, all of that's been happening, you know, the increasing industrialization and technology have tended to make people live more atomic lives. Their social networks, they don't live with extended families. They're more and more isolated. Is why loneliness is increasing. So that's taking place. And all of these things, I'm describing them separately, but you need to understand they're all mutually reinforcing each other. And then the technology and some of the increasing ways in which the culture has been secularized uh, since the Second World War, have both, you know, just accelerated that that whole complex web of right uh, of mutually reinforcing factors that I've tried to give you the gist of, and so and that's accelerating increasingly and increasingly.
Yeah. So people feel, people feel there's nowhere to turn and that everything is swamped with bullshit. I'm using that in a technical sense, not just colloquial. And, and, and technical sense, meaning language that's meant to deceive or not meant to get at the truth or. So I'm, I'm, I'm using the, the distinction as first developed by Harry Frankfurt between lying and bullshitting. And then I'm sort of building on that. I think largely in a way that is strongly implied by what he directly explicitly said. The liar manipulates you by depending on your concern for the truth. I tell you something that I know isn't true, but I try to get you to believe it's true because if I'm depending on your commitment to truth to change your behavior. The bullshit artist does something different. The bullshit artist tries to get you disconcerned with whether or not something is true or false. Instead, they want you to, and this is where I'm building on, Frankfurt, they want you to get caught up in the salience of the information, how much, how catchy it is, how much it stands out and grabs your attention. So one of my standard examples, this is, you know, a standard commercial or advertisement. Right? You see uh, people drinking alcohol and they're all beautiful people and they're all happy and they're all healthy. And you know, that's not true. And the advertisers know, you know, no, it's not true. And they're, they're depending on you knowing it's not true because what you then do is you, you don't, you don't care. It's truth becomes irrelevant to you. And then what you do, you pay attention because the people are attractive and you like to see happy people, right? And social situations and you would long for that kind of connection. And so it's all salient to you. And that's salient. You know, it's not true, but it's salient, right? And that catches your attention. And so you go and buy the product. And that's how you've been bullshitted. And here's the thing. This is why it's so important. You can't lie to yourself because belief doesn't work that way. You can't make yourself have a belief that you don't believe, that you believe is false. It doesn't work that way. You can't lie to yourself. Like, like choose a belief you don't have, right? That everybody loves you. Do it. Believe it. Like, go, right? It, it, it doesn't work that way. That's not how belief works, right? But attention and salience are, see, the thing about salience is, you can direct your attention to make something salient. Like if I say your forehead, it suddenly becomes salient to you. You become aware of it. But I can also make something salient and then that catches your attention. So notice what you can do. You direct your attention towards the alcohol and that makes it more salient. Now, because it's more salient, it catches your attention more. And then you direct, you're more likely to direct your attention in the future, which catches you. And then you loop. And that's how you deceive yourself because you disconnected all of this salience machinery from the truth, right? And you're just caught up in this salience looping in which you're increasingly bullshitting yourself into being manipulated by whoever is bullshitting you. That's why people people think they're so protected by their cynicism. I know what Trump says isn't true. They don't realize that that is not protection. That is causally efficacious in making them more and more susceptible to the salience of what he is saying and the bullshitting. That's why they watch him so much, even though they know that he's a liar, right? And again, I'm not taking, I'm a Canadian, I'm not taking sides in your politics. I'm trying to use an example. What I have good evidence and reason to believe is that there are people increasingly sense and report that there is more and more bullshit in their lives in every aspect of their lives, it's growing, it's deepening, and it's eroding on so many of their potential relations and engagements with other people. And the technology platforms are not addressing this at all, at all. 
In fact, they are in many ways exacerbating it. Yeah. And I think they're lost for, for how to even do it or how, how to even yeah. within the incentive structure that it doesn't necessarily incentivize to do, to do it in the short term. Yeah. So, I mean, there, like you said, there's got to be other normativity involved here, you know, uh, where issues of connectedness and meaning people are valuing something in, in terms of how it's helped them overcome self-deception perhaps in their life. Like, like these, if we could measure these as metrics in a reliable fashion and use them as normative standards by which we evaluate the usage of the platforms, then we could begin to adjust accordingly, I would say. The, one of the ways you described earlier uh, in, in your book how these things are related, you said there's no longer neurological order of uniting mind to the world, no longer overarching narrative order providing the purpose for it all, and no longer normative order for ascending to the divine. Yes, exactly. And so let, let's take a look, for example, at one of the symptoms of the meaning crisis, how people, you know, there's books, more and more books written on this, you know, the virtual exodus and reality is broken. Why, why do people like video? Let's take video games. Well, there's, there's a clear nomological order. There's a rule structure that makes everything intelligible to you. Nothing is absurd. Nothing is bullshitty. It all makes clear, intelligible sense. There's problems you have to solve. But that's not what we're talking about. You don't mind having problems to solve, but you don't want absurdity. You don't want bullshit. You know, so there's a clear nomological structure. Intelligibility is pervasive and accessible to you. Secondly, there's a normative structure. You know how to self-transcend. You level up and you know how to level up and you know how to get better and more and more, right? And there's a narrative structure. (laughs) There's a clear story there and you are a clear agent having a clear function in that narrative, right? And what else? The environment is set up to give you quick feedback. Your actions are coupled so you can get into the flow state and feel deeply connected in the flow state. So you can access that, that procedural perspective and participatory knowing because you're in the flow state. And so do we make the world more like video game? Do we make school more like video game, work more like video game? Or does no, that, no, no, that's, no, that's the problem? For- <laughs> no, no. What I was trying to point out is but why is there such hunger for these features? Is because people have lost the cultural sense that their worldview has any of those features in it. You know, you'll say, well, science is giving us a lot of intelligibility, but not the intelligibility that meshes with the existential meaning of people's lives. So people find the contrast between the perspectives within which they're living, the narratives within they're living, and the scientific worldview they find that generates profound feelings of absurdity. Like, look, you act on purpose. The universe doesn't, right? That is like, that's a big disjunct. And if you pay any attention to it because you hunger for that intelligibility, that can exacerbate your sense of absurdity. The universe, there is no narrative running. Evolution isn't a narrative. We shouldn't call it the story of evolution. It's not a story. Evolution has no foresight. It is not looking. It is not teleological. It is not goal-pursuing, right? There isn't such a narrative. And most people have no idea what to do with their anomalous experiences. 40% of the population, reliably, it looks like, has mystical experiences, awakening experiences, tremendous experiences where they, and I study this, where they go into this alternative state and they experience that as the really real, somehow more real than their everyday life. The exact opposite of dreams, by the way. 
dreams are alternative states that we say, oh, those aren't real. But people go into these states and they come back and say, that was more real than this, right? Which is why things like, you know, movies like The Matrix and Inception and all those things where we're, where we're you know, reflecting on that sense of reality and realness are so important to us, right? And so, but my point is, people have these experiences, but they have no guidance. They have no structure. They have no set of practices for how to incorporate and integrate those alternative experiences and states into their lives. And so instead, what you get are you get two reactions in general. Well, maybe three. People get disturbed, very disturbed. Ah, what was that? Don't do that, right? But they can't ignore it because it's so much better than what they're experiencing now. And that's deeply disruptive. They get incredibly narcissistic. Oh, look at this wonderful experience. I'm going to collect as many of these as I can and put them on my autobiographical shelf to show everybody how bloody unique I am. As if not every other object in the universe is unique. Everything is unique. Uniqueness is not something to celebrate. It is not something to celebrate. But here I'm unique and I'm special, right? Or people are dismissive. Oh, that's just new agey bullshit and they just ignore it, right? And so, right, they don't have a normative order. There is no narrative order. There is no nomological. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. The cognitive science is giving us a sense of how we can come up with, I would argue, a scientific worldview in which our meaning making and our intelligence are deeply interwoven into that scientific worldview. And that we could bring back, as I've said, we could reverse engineer and re-engineer psychotechnologies, practices that make sense of and help to systematize and organize our experiences that are otherwise anomalous into experiences of reliable self-transcendence so that we can reliably aspire to wisdom. Yeah. And help paint that picture a bit further. If we're, if we're back in this podcast 10 years from now or 30 years from now, and your you know, lecture series that you've just released is how we've improved the meaning of yeah. how we've you know, advanced or how we, because it seems like it's getting worse. But if we, what would it look like for us to be on the upswing of that? Is, is it we brought back some of these religious practices? Is it that we've uh, gotten more confidence in the process of politics? Is like, what uh, so it, what, I don't think there's a political solution right now because for historical reasons, our polit- as I've already said, we've lost faith in the process and we have replaced opponent processing with adversarial and we have got locked onto the propositional level. It's all about belief systems, right? So I don't think there's a political solution. And I, I mean that in a deep way. This is why I refuse to take sort of a political side on this because I think formulating this format, like remember we talked about problem formulation. Formulating this as a political problem in which one party has to win out over the other, etc. I think that's to that's to exacerbate the very disconnectedness of the other kinds of knowing and, and paying attention to the process that are fundamentally needed to addressing this. So what I see is a cultural process, and it, by the way, it's already happening. One of the great gifts of the series is I've been just talking to so many communities that are forming and taking shape and doing a lot of this hard work about trying to create these ecologies of practices, trying to bring in, you know, mindfulness practices, both seated and movement. By the way, I should emphasize, getting movement mindfulness practices are very, very important, right? And you and you don't just want meditative practices, you want contemplative practices, you want movement practices. People who are trying to create, you know, authentic discourse practices, people who are trying to create ways to live more rationally, to aspire more reliably, 
uh, towards rationality and towards wisdom. People who are trying to do connect the scientific work on these experiences, mystical experiences and awakening experiences to, you know, legitimate models of cognitive processing and brain functioning so that we can better understand. So that that's happening. And, and, and all of the, this is nascent, but there, there's an increasing uh, discussion about this. And, and what I see most helpful is people really caring about the process, the cultural cognitive processes of not only intrapersonal, but interpersonal. How do we improve the discourse, the dialogue? How do we bring into both this way and that way, right? All these other kinds of knowing. How do we pay more attention and give my, my, more priority to the meaning-making over getting certain victorious beliefs, et cetera, et cetera? I see all of that happening. And so what, I, what, I, what it would look like would be, you know, a network a cooperative network of these communities that sort of create, you know, a, a shared wiki philosophy by which they vet each other and coordinate with each other and share a procedural nor, uh, normativity with each other, whereby people are create. People don't have to have the same, but they're, you know, they but they're well engineered collectively and individually ecologies of practices. And a culture that has come to value meaning making for the, to the level at which it should be most properly valued. Our culture has made war on the value we attach to meaning making for a very long time. And that if, if things were to change, it would be, I would see people willing to take significant reduction. Oh, and this is going to, this is going to be provocative, right? People are going to take significant reduction in their standard of living because they trust in a path and a community of meaning making. That's what I see happening. And you know what? And I, you know, that's not just, that's not just, you know, maybe that's already happening. Like the next generation knows, talk to them. They know that their standard of living is going to be less. They're not going to own a car. They're not going to own a house. And they're pissed off because they've been taught that that's the measure of everything. And then when they try to pursue and make meaning more central, they get hammered by the established cultural institutions and political institutions. That's why they're angry. That's why they're increasingly angry because they basically, they're tapping into an ancient form of human resiliency. Okay. Things are getting tough in terms of, you know, standard of living, I'm going to cultivate more meaning. That's what humans have reliably done. But our culture is thwarting that. So it's simultaneously doing two things. Imagine how pernicious this might seem to most people. It's taking away the standard of living while bullshitting us all about it. Oh, no, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Bullshit, bullshit. It's not. We know it's not. It's getting worse, right? And at the same time, no, no, no meaning making for you. No meaning making for you. Just work harder. Work harder, work harder. How is it shutting off the meaning making or, or lessening it? Because it is not making it a cultural. It's, it's, I don't, I, I'm not trying to say that there's a cabal of people that are out there destroying meaning making. What I'm trying to say is this is destruction by neglect, right? And by a culture that overemphasize, well, to use Fromian language, 
overemphasizes the having mode, the having of things, the, the consumption of things, the, the having of connections, the having of ideas, the having of possession. Over the being mode, the mode of becoming, becoming wise, becoming compassionate, becoming virtuous. And, and we, well, that's just natural. That's bullshit. That is not natural. We have historical examples from our own past. We have cultural examples from around the world where that doesn't have to be. And so, like I said, the millennials and, right, and the generation after them, they're angry because we've killed God, replaced it with a marketplace, by and large, that is more and more disenfranchising them. And so where do they go? Where do they go? Yeah. Two follow-up questions. One is, can, can you just close the loop on why, because some people actually suggest this, why it would be short-sighted or wrong to make life more like a video game or to design education or work more like uh, video because people see the, the joy that, you know, especially, you know, boys, teenage boys get for video games say, Oh, if we could only channel this in other areas, they would pay as much attention and be as excited. What, why is that short-sighted or wrong or make things even worse if, if it is? And then two, this is writer, I believe, you know, Dave Chapman on uh, on one of his blogs that basically mindfulness meditation has become sort of unbundled from Buddhism and I'm, oh, very much. And I've published, I've published that same criticism. David right. and I very deeply agree on this. We've taken an ecology of practices. Look at the Eightfold Path. It's an ecology of practices. There's, meta, there's, there's meditative practices, there's contemplative practices. Those are not synonymous, by the way. There are movement practices, there are ethical practices, there are discourse practices, there are aspirational practices. It is a complex ecology, a self-organizing system that is supposed to be as powerful and complex self-organizing as all the bullshit self-deception machinery running in your head and in your relationships. And it has to be complex and self-organizing ecology because that's the only thing that can address the complex bullshit in our lives and in our heads. Yeah. And so is there a problem or, or, or if I'm, or is it great if I'm basically if it's sort of like a buffet, this ecology of practice, and I take mindfulness meditation over here, uh, I think uh, that okay. over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so two things. Let's do the first thing. Uh, so we'll do, well, the first thing is the, the video thing. Uh, the problem with that, it, well, there's twofold, which is, uh, and this goes back to, I think, pivotal work done by Susan Wolf. A, a big thing in, in for meaning in life is people need to feel connected to something that they often say bigger than themselves. I think it ultimately means more real uh, than just that it has an independent reality, right, and value uh, beyond them just liking it or wanting it. So this is something I do in my classrooms. But I'll, I'll ask people to put up their hands if they're in a satisfying personal, like, romantic relationship. And we have all this, we have all this pseudo-religion around our romantic relationships. We try to make our romantic relationships do all the work that, you know, you know philosophy and religion and mysticism and culture used to do for no you are going to do it for me you my romantic partner you're going to take the place of god and wisdom and cultural heritage and tradition you're going to do it right so this is why it's a particularly good example so you ask people are you in a satisfying romantic relationship put up your hand yes 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 okay keep your hand up if you would want to know that your partner was cheating on you even if you knew that meant the end of the relationship 95% of people keep their hand up See, again, they, they, they don't want it if it's not real, right? There's this deep need, part of what, and probably that goes back to our evolutionary heritage, adaptivity, right? 
And, and this is why the video game exodus is not helping, right? I mean, the WHO is actually considering video game addiction as a real thing. Precisely because, I mean, I suppose if we were to make something like The Matrix that was a comprehensive video world uh, that became indistinguishable, so that it was impossible for people from within it uh, to find out that they were in the simulation and then crafted it so it had the three orders, I suppose that would be a viable solution. I don't see us having the technology to do that. And secondly, that strikes me as an inherently immoral thing to do. Because yeah. there's going to have to be people on the outside manipulating all of this. I mean, that's why we did the Matrix trilogy yeah. and all that, because we're worried about that. So that's the first thing. I want, I'm curious about those 5% that say they, 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 they wouldn't want to know. I wonder well, if it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting because like, I, I don't have anything either than anecdotal evidence on this. But they're very distressed about it to some degree. Like they, they're anxious because they know that they sh- probably should keep their hand up. And they sh- but. And, 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 and you can, and if you press some of them, they're often sort of saying, uh, it's for my insecurity that's keep me, b- making me bring my hand down rather than anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder so, if, if the prompt changes, if you know, you're going to die soon. <laughs> if you know, you're going to die soon. I don't know. Maybe, uh, depends. I mean, there's different ways in which people can respond. Uh, to the knowledge that they're going to die soon. Uh, sometimes people can become... Because, for example, the reason I, I would want to probably know is because, hey, I should probably get out of this, uh, you know, out of it. Um, whereas, you know, I'd find out eventually somehow or... or But if I'm going to die soon, then, hey, <laughs> why, why end with suffering? Or or if you change the prompt of, you would never find out and it wouldn't be a threat at all. It, it would just, um, you know, a thing just happened and it's sort of, it's in the past. Well, but, 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 but that's... The second thing is is part of how I set up the thought experiment, right? Like it, it, it's like it's not that it's imminent, right? You you'd have to say yes to this question in order for the information probe to be launched, for example. But I'm more interested in the first one though because that's interesting. What people might say, I I, I still have strong suspicion. I think you'd be you're right. There'd be a shift, but I still think the majority of people would want to know precisely because they would want to die, and this is what people do say. They want to die with, uh, with uh, you know, in the presence of those to whom they feel most connected. And, right, you, you kind of want that to be, again, the real connection when you're facing yeah. that. And, and just last question, does it make us happier or does it give us more meaning, this sense for always needing to know the real, or as always needing to know what happened or always needing to know, or it, it, some of it stems from a desire for control, right? Some of it's a desire for control, but also I think some of it is a desire. This is a contentious issue as well. I'm hesitating. This is sort of a, something that goes back to Plato, but I think that we desire realness for its own sake. And, and the reason why I'm not only because of arguments, but a reason why I say that is again, let's go back to these experiences that people have, they, these awakening experiences, and they describe what they have as not as deeply pleasurable. There's often no content. It's ineffable. They just get a sense of it being really real. And what they're willing to change their identities, their lives, their relationships, their careers, to try and get back to that really real. It seems like realness has a deep inherent value for us in and of itself. Because the, the, the really real is not because it's ineffable and it's so transcendent, it's not an object over which they are going to exercise control. It's exactly the opposite. 
they don't control it. They feel called to transform themselves in the face of it uh, in order to be closer to it. And that's all they want out of it. So let's go back to the other issue. I'm trying to remember what it was. One was oh, it's the uh, it's the unbundling. You know, this quote in technology that you make money by unbundling and then rebundling, and that every five to ten years is sort of a shift. And I, I, we were talking about the a la carte, you know, the mindfulness meditation. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So there's you don't want the a la carte because the a la carte isn't going to give the the ecology. So what you see from the established religions traditions, you know, in our own past cross culturally, is again. Like I said, an ecology, because you want it to be self-organizing, dynamic. If you construct it in a dilettante, right, you know, autodidactic fashion, you're just going to make something that is, you know, like most autodidactic learning, that is just reinforcing all that self-deceptive machinery that you're supposed to be trying to address with your practices. So the chances that that's going to be effective for you I think are low and it's going to leave you with a bad taste in your mouth for the sets of practices that you ultimately do need to cultivate if you're going to address these perennial problems. My colleague, uh, RA, former, well, still a grad student of mine, Jin Sung Kim, he's done research showing that there's a factor called path immersion is predictive of how wise people become, like being immersed in a path, right? Which is not the same thing as a dilettante, you know, selecting, dabbling in a bunch of things. Uh, that's very predictive of uh, people uh, becoming wiser. Now, interestingly, it doesn't, ha- it, it doesn't have to be a particular path. It could be a Buddhist path or a Muslim path, right, or a Neoplatonic path. But getting something, again, that has... See, see, what ecologies have is they have a life of their own. They have a dynamic of their own, which means you can be connected to something beyond yourself that can have a powerful impact back on yourself. That's what you need to really afford challenging your self-deception and affording genuine self-transcendence. And so I think just dabbling and, you know, in an eclectic autodidactic fashion is going to have exactly the opposite effects. And there, like I said, I've tried to indicate some of the reasons for why I'm saying that. Probably. And, you know, if, um, Let's pretend that, uh, you know, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, some of the sort of the, the new atheists, so to speak, were, were listening in on this conversation. What, what do you think is the crux of sort of the difference of opinion that, that you have between them that maybe leads to different conclusions? Or, or what do you think they, they miss or underappreciate or, or don't exactly get? Ah, oh, okay. That's an interesting question. And I would say there's a couple of things. One is I consider myself a non-theist. And I think the, the problem with people like Harris and Dawkins is they share the same set of they share a set of presuppositions with the people they're arguing against. So the because theism and, and the atheists are often pretty clear on this isn't itself a positive doctrine. It's just not not theism, right? And and um, so let you know not a stamp collector and all that sort of stuff, right? So let's take that. Let's take them at their word, and I think that's a that's a reasonable thing to do. Notice what both the the presuppositions that are shared by the theists and the atheists, meaning that they consider these the right way of stating the problem, and then they give the opposite answers to. So that there is a supreme being, that ultimate reality should be thought of in terms of being a kind of thing or a being, Um, and the theist, at least the classical theist and the atheist, both agree that that's the right question to be asked when we're talking about God, for example, 
And then, of course, the theist says yes, and the, the atheist says no. And it's like, for me, that's a deep and profound mistake. Trying to talk about realness, this really real, as if it is a thing. What I said earlier, it is to fundamentally misformulate the problem. And it is to concentrate on kind of a cognitive product rather than the actual process of realizing realness. So there, there's one thing. Secondly, both, the, at least now, the classical theists and the atheists think that this is an issue of belief and what you believe, and it's all about belief. I reject that. I've already given you arguments where I think that this is not primarily a matter of belief. Look, go to, look, go to the thing where Dawkins is talking and he rails against these beliefs and everybody goes, yes, those aren't the beliefs. And then they line up, they line up because they want to shake his hand and have him sign their book. Okay, pay attention to what's actually going on procedurally, prospectively, in participatory fashion. That's what's actually going on. So I reject the idea that it's about belief. I think the issue of whether or not it is accurate to symbolize ultimate reality as a person is a non-decidable issue for the following reason. Nelson Goodman gave this argument a long time ago in 1972. There is no objective measure of similarity. Any two objects are logically similar to each other because if similarity means partial identity, sharing of properties, any two objects share an indefinitely large number of properties. Any two objects fail to share an indefinitely large. There is no, because what we ultimately do is decide which of the shared properties are relevant or which of the not shared properties are relevant, right? So trying to, as if it's an objective question, is just to misunderstand similarity in a fundamental way. And then all of this discourse is not helping people on either side, and here's the deepest critique, make more meaning. <coughs> and I think, and I could give this argument, and I give it in the, in the lecture series, that sacredness is ultimately a way of talking about an intense experience of profound meaning. And meaning isn't a subjective property. It isn't an objective property. It's what I call transjective. It is a real relationship between your cognition and the world. It's an affordance, like the graspability of the cup. It's not a property of the cup, not a property of my hand. It's a real relationship between the cup and my hand. And so I think all of those are the fundamental mistakes that are, sh right? And I think insofar, look, if you're just negating something, you're still bound to its grammar. You're still bound deeply to its grammar. And Dawkins and Harris are just negating. That's my deepest criticism. Secondly, I just find them often hypocritical. They make arguments about rationality and science without looking at any of, you know, I, you know, the deep science of rationality, the deep science uh, about religious behavior, you know, and other people have made, Scott Atron has, has made that point repeatedly. It's not like, well, you, you, you basically sit back in your armchair and write a book castigating all religions. You're not allowed to do science that way, right? And if, and if it's philosophy, then you need to engage with all of the philosophy of religion, which they don't do. They don't engage with the philosophy of science, et cetera, et cetera. So not only do I think they're bound to the, by their act of mere negation, they're bound to the same grammar, the same presupposition. 
I, I don't like the way they're doing it. I think they're often doing it in a disrespectful and I don't think completely, I don't, I don't want to claim that they're dishonest because that implies lying. A contrast to, to them often, um, certainly intellectually and maybe even stylistically, but is, and someone who, you know, is, you, you've worked with Jordan Peterson and is perhaps one of the, the most, yeah. most famous in this. Where, where do you differ from, from him or, 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 or shades in terms of what's the crux of what you believe is different? <laughs> I get that asked that all the time because we're both from the University of Toronto. We're both from the psychology department. Uh, we both, we've shared lots of students over the years. We've appeared at many conferences together and many panels together. We did a video discussion on meaning in life a long time ago. That was actually his first non-political video to actually go really big. And that, I think, is important because I think Jordan is famous for two reasons that should be distinguished. They're not identical. One is, you know, he hopped onto a political bandwagon upon which I will not hop. Okay? So that whole aspect of his work, I mean... And to be fair to Jordan, initially, when he was still accessible, I wrote to him and said, you know, here's the arguments I agree that you're making. Uh, here's why. Here's the arguments that you're making that I disagree with. And he wrote back and said, thanks. He was he was open to that because that's that's how we're supposed to do this. I don't think, for lack of a better term, because I don't know if these terms mean anything anymore, but the way the left initially responded to him was not to properly engage in respectful debate and dialogue. And there was a self-righteousness. Um, in the response of the left that I found deeply off-putting because it has been my philosophical and existential experience that self-righteousness is something that is deeply predictive uh, vice in people. And I mean, that's that's ultimately, I think, goes back to sort of both Socrates and Jesus and Nazareth. Self-righteousness is something that, you know, you have to really, really uh, pay attention to. It's, it's a very profound form of self-deception. And it's notice how it's at this very deeply unconscious level of participatory knowing. And so all that being said, I think that whole political project is distinct from what I think is another project. And this is where Jordan and I continually overlapped in the past, which is this whole issue of the meaning crisis. I think Jordan put uh, his finger on the pulse of this in a profound way. Now, so in that, we agree, I think, about the importance of meaning-making. Meaning cultivation, I think, is a better term, although sense-making sense and meaning-making are more pervasive. But meaning, I think, is something we cultivate. I don't think it's something we just make the way we make an artifact. But putting the finger on that, that the, the, the centrality of meaning, um, I think, is, is something that he and I agree on, and I think it's something that I give him credit for. His response to it, Bringing back the, we both, by the way, share this uh, this orientation towards the importance of what I call relevance realization, zeroing in on relevant information. We had a public debate about it. We've discussed about it. Uh, I know this is something that he also, that there's deep connections between uh, meaning cultivation and the way we have to bias our attention to what we consider relevant and ignore what's irrelevant. So there's that. He, like I, I think, is very concerned with issues of self-deception because of, for, for similar reasons. Uh, so I think those are some deep points of contact. Like I say, I don't share his political vision. And so his commitment to sort of liberal individualism, I disagree with uh, sort of very philosophically because I think most of our problem solving is done with distributed cognition. Uh, 
we did not make these platforms. We're not running the electrical grid. You didn't make your clothing. You didn't build your house. We didn't make the English we're using, blah, 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 right? Most of our work is done and is, in, you know, from hunter gathering through civilization is done in, in distributed cognition. So I think I'm in fact critical of um, sort of uh, liberal, classical liberal individualism because I think it has generated a lot of the atomization of, of people. So I would criticize him on that point. His commitment to understanding meaning, there's, let's see, I want to be more nuanced here. Bringing in the value of symbols and myth, mythos, I think that's great. I think that's important, and I talk about those at length. And trying to get people to understand that they're not just cognitive ornamentation, they're not just a slippery way of talking, but they're actually deeply needed, they're indispensable to human cognition. Uh, you know, I think I can add more to that than he brings in. So this is part of the criticism. The only framework he by and large brings in uh, to try and articulate that is a Jungian framework. And while I think there's value in Jung, I think Jung is one of, one of the prophets of the meaning crisis. Modern Man in Search of a Soul is one of the documents sort of announcing the advent of the meaning crisis. And I'll talk about Jung at the end of the video series. I, I think that's an insufficient. I think we, we cognitive science has moved tremendously, and there's aspects of embodiment and embeddedness and dynamical coupling and self-organizing systems and complexity theory and the deep continuity between our increasing understanding of biology and cognitive. All of this is vast resources that should be brought to bear uh, to discuss meaning, and I think it's I think it's legitimate to say that they go beyond, they transcend. In powerful ways, they don't they don't destroy, but they transcend and go beyond the Jungian framework to a much more encompassing and I think uh, profound framework. So I would argue that's a criticism I have of him. And then also, I guess part of it, uh, a difference I might have with him is he has a status that none of none, none of the rest of us who are talking about this I think have. Jordan, and I think this was somewhat crafted on his part. Jordan is, he's a father figure. That's why, the, you know, his vast demographic is sort of young white man, although apparently um, uh, it, it's broadening a little bit, but still very much a father figure. And, and again, I, maybe this is because of his commitment to sort of individual responsibility. It would be, Good if because he has the role model, Jordan exemplified more discourse creation and community creation and accessing collective intelligence and uh, talking about the cultural machinery and not just the intrapsychic machinery, because I think that's going to be needed to addressing the meaning crisis. So I think that's a significant omission within his uh, body of work. We skip this question if, if no good answer comes to mind, but um, what, how do you think about the sweet spot between the you know, liberal individualism on one side and then sort of, you know, collectivism <laughs> on the other side? I think we should stop doing that. I think we should stop creating a, I think this is a false dichotomy. I mean, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I like Tillich because unlike Jung who just talked about individuation, Tillich talked about, an ongoing, inescapable, but nevertheless creative tension between individuation and participation, and that they're completely interdefining and interpenetrating. Look, again, you're thinking in your head in English. 
You didn't make English. You've internalized other people's perspectives to give you your own metacognition. You've fallen into cultural narratives by which you've crafted the autobiography that you think is your true self. I'm not trying to denigrate your projects. I'm just trying to show you, right? But on, but, but by the same token, you're not just a cog in machine. There's ways in which, as Stephen Batchelor put it, we're always alone with others. Both of these are irre- they're, they're irremovable aspects, but they are completely interdefining and interpenetrating. I think we should stop pitching that the solution is somehow to decide between these and venerate one at the expense of the other. I think that is just deeply wrong. I think that's to deeply misformulate the problem. And, and again, it's not, I mean, we can label other cultures from the outside from this, but that doesn't mean that that's how they understood what they were doing. Like, I don't know, like, would it, would an ancient, even Athenian, you know, consider themselves an individual or just part of a collect? I don't even know if that would make sense to them. What would be a better formulation? We're cognitive cultural beings. Our brains are embodied. Our bodies are embedded ecologically, socially, culturally. We are embodied, embedded, inactive things. And we start. We should start paying attention to what we actually are instead of pretended fictions for which we kill other people. This gets a little bit what you were talking about when we first started the podcast about advancements in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, very much. I mean... This is what I mean by it has to be participatory. This is what I meant when I said your worldview actually has an impact on the guts of how you live your life and experience yourself. If you've sort of imbibed this, right, this dichotomy, right, you think of you, you're, you think of yourself as somehow you, you have a true self inside you somewhere, right, and you're supposed to be true to that and express it, and you know, and there's a there's a hard boundary between yourself and the environment. And between your mind and your body and your mind and your world and your mind and other people. And as I would say that all of those claims are more false than they are true. And that's what increasingly what cognitive science, I think, is providing good argument and good evidence for. I want to break the grammar. And I'm in discussion with other people who want to break the grammar. I don't want to choose one side over the other. And that I am not copying out. I'm trying to give you why I want to break the grammar so that we can deeply reformulate the problem. We are locked in a bad problem formulation. And no matter how many times you spin inside a bad problem formulation, you won't solve the problem. You have to break the grammar so that you can reformulate the problem in a profound way. You know, there are um, different types of language, like E-prime or nonviolent communication that try to yes, reshape yes. how we think about grammar. Do you want to create versions of that or, or things that... Very, very, yeah, yeah, very much. I'm very much interested in, in, in a participatory fashion. I'm involved with people who are doing, you know, these kinds of practices. And, I, and the, the, seri- the, seri- the follow-up series that I'm working on right now because we've done, by the way, we filmed all 50 episodes and they're all edited. So it's all done. And I'm working on the follow-up series, which is one of the things it's going to try and get at is all of these, these attempts to integrate the cultivation of wisdom and authentic discourse and bring about a fundamental transformation in the grammar, the cultural cognitive grammar. It's called After Socrates because that's what Socrates and the Socratic dialogue 
right, represent an ancient, the dialectic represents an ancient, uh, what Jordan Hall would call uh, meta-psychotechnologies. That was how we tapped into the wisdom traditions and collective reasoning and distributed cognition uh, in order to try and create, you know, an efficacious uh, ecology of practices. And, and what I want to do is try and get, because there's a lot of great work coming out about right now about that ancient template and, and how it ramified through various traditions, and then put that into, if you'll allow me, dialogue with all the, these current movements to bring back dialogos, right? Remember what dialogue means by way of the logos. Logos doesn't just mean words. Logos is like it's a self-organizing system. It's things are gathered together so they belong together. Logos is not just the words we're speaking. It's the way in which you and I are co-creating together something that transcends both of us to which we can both belong and can generate insight and aspiration in us that we can't individually generate for ourselves. And so I want to put the, I want to get, put the ancient, I want to use the ancient metapsychotechnology of dialectic, Socratic dialectic, and put it into dialogue with all of these modern movements that are trying to bring back this integration between the cultivation of self-knowledge and authentic discourse. Because if you go into these practices, both of those are deeply emphasized. You have to be simultaneously cultivating deep self-knowing and not just propositional, all the kinds of knowing I'm talking about, as because it, it affords your ability to actually get into the dialogos with other people and get the deep kinds of transformative connections to others. So I want that's what exactly I want to understand. I want to understand it very deeply. I have some wonderful people helping me. Guy Sandstock, uh, Peter Lindbergh, as I mentioned, uh, Jordan Hall. There's just a bunch of people that I'm talking to that are all putting tremendous talent and time into this project and yeah this whole sort of game b stuff is, is really taking off and the question i have is basically like how radical does this have to be you know the game b stuff is is, is you know calling for this whole, whole change of how we think about economics you know for example some people are calling for a sort of division between how we uh act on a local scale and how we act on a macro scale and basically the punchline is you know, keep your tribalism out of my markets and your market-based thinking out of my tribes. And basically what they're saying is, can we have the best of both? Can we have all the great things that Steven Pinker has, has written about that the sort of scientific enlightenment has brought in us while also having rich communities, uh, you know, on an individual level and, and some of the tribal stuff that we used to have? How do you, how do you respond? So I respond in this fashion. I think that given the arguments I've made, and I'm not going to repeat them all, and other arguments I've made elsewhere that are available to people, that what we need is a really significant transformation in consciousness, cognition, culture, uh, communitas. And the only thing that has done that reliably for us in the past has been religion. And the problem is we, as I said, most people can't pursue religion for all kinds of historical and idiosyncratic personal reasons, right? And I don't want to make light of those. Many people have been traumatized at the hands of religion. But many people see the attempts to create secular alternatives as having, and I agree with them, as having been complete failures. I think trying to create something that is less comprehensive than what religion is will fail to do what we need to do. I think trying to nostalgically just recreate uh, religions in some fundamentalist fashion, I think, is doomed to fail too. So I sometimes say we need a religion that's not a religion, 
I don't see how you can keep these various aspects um, separate from each other. Let me give you an example. Let's say we want the market to run. Right? Well, we have we have some sort of normativity and understanding of what uh, human identity is. So here's a particular way in which we're making a, a, a subspecies of meaning. But any particular subspecies of meaning, any system that is like making, here's just, you know, sort of, you know, economic meaning. And then over here, let's our legal system. Maybe we should keep our legal system separate from, right? Well, why don't we keep these things separate from each other? Well, first of all, they intersect and interpenetrate. But here's a deeper reason. All of these depend on a shared cultural meaning system. That's why you experience, again, culture shock when you go somewhere else, right? And it's independent of the market and it's independent of the legal system, right? There, there has to be, Clifford Geertz talked about this as a meta meaning system. There has to be, there is a way in which the agent and arena are co-created and co-coupled together such that you can take up particular species of agency such that you can be an economic agent within the market arena, or you can be a legal agent within the court system, or you can be a political agent within the governmental system. But all of those have to de depend on a deeper shared meta-meaning system. And that was typically, and this was Geertz's argument, done by religion in the past. And religion is in that sense a meta-meaning system. So I think the, the attempt to, to keep these things isolated is going is not going to work, and I think it will actually lead to the sense of fragmentation that is part of the meaning crisis that people feel deeply fragmented within themselves. You know, I was going to ask earlier how much of it needs to be old practices versus versus new practices, and we'll get to that in a, in a second. You know, we I see pitches all the time about people trying to address loneliness in terms of building businesses off like things like Soul Cycle or things like you know, physical community centers and, and, you know, co-living center. And I suspect, you know, I suspect that's also sort of, you know, half solution or not even half solutions, but segueing that into a bigger question of how much of it is going to be reformations within existing religions, like, you know, upgrades, so to speak, versus new religions or new mythologies that, that could happen, could occur, but haven't yet. I don't, I don't know. That's a really hard question. It's a really hard question to answer. I want to be really careful because I, I, I think genuine, this question should be, a, be approached with really due deference and, and humility. I tend to think there's going to need to be quite a bit of innovation. There's going to be lots of salvaging from the religious heritages, not necessarily Asiatic ones either, our own uh, religious heritage, our own philosophical heritage, the Neoplatonic tradition, which Bruce Lewis argues is the sort of grammar of Western spirituality that we need to bring back and retool in powerful ways. So I think there's going to be a lot of upgrading. The degree to which the, the established religions are capable of doing this, I, I don't know. I'm more hesitant about that precisely because I've been in conversation with people, and I don't mean any pun here, of good faith in, who are really trying to do this within uh, Christianity. I see them doing this, and, and they're bringing tremendous insight, like you know, people like Jonathan Pajot and Paul Vanderclay and Mary Cohen and others. There's a whole bunch of people that have made, at least made me stop and deeply think, and I mean that as a compliment, I don't mean it dismissively, that there are untapped resources perhaps uh, within religion. But I think that being said, 
and I think they perhaps acknowledge this, the religions are going to be going through some very huge uh, changes if they're going to restructure themselves to deal with the historical past and the current forces that are at work today. So I guess, and I'm sorry, this sounds like a cop-out, but I'm trying not to. It's maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, I do think a lot of innovation is going to be needed. I think all, I think there's good reason why we're seeing all these new emergent psychotechnologies and ecologies of practices and communities and networks of communities. Um, but as to an answer of the relative proportion between how much we will salvage, how much we will uh, upgrade, and how much we will innovate, I don't know. I really can't answer that. You know, one thinker who I um, and, and skip this if you're not super familiar uh, or familiar enough. Um, one thinker who I hear a lot in some of these uh, topics is Robert Persig, who wrote the cult classic Zen and the Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a, I had a I had a long discussion with Sibylla King, um, and she runs uh, another important voice in this. She runs a, a channel called Quality Existence, uh, yeah. where she tries to uh, propose basically, and I mean this comp in the uh, be a compliment where she proposes, you know, uh, Zen and the Art of Mojo, maintenance, and Lila as sacred texts uh, yeah. that would give us a way uh, of restructuring our worldview such that it becomes viable to uh, cultivate wisdom and self-transcendence again. We've had, I would recommend, uh, if you want an answer to that, to take a look at the, the very good discussion. We had some very important uh, connections between Persig's notions of quality and my notions of my notion of relevance realization, and and some interesting discussion uh, around Persig and my different approaches to uh, the Greek our Greek heritage. So there's a lot there. There's a yeah. lot there. I think. Do you do you buy it as a sacred text or a text that you think is worthy of, of adding to the lectures, or or is there something key that he misses? You think, or or something that he hits? Or I'm reading it right now, so uh, I think I'm. I'm not in a place where I can answer that question. What I will say is, I mean, I think of sacredness as a way of connecting to something that is an inexhaustible source of, of, you know, a fount, as I like to put it, of ongoing, evolving intelligibility. So, you know, I often say Plato, I read Plato, it transforms me, my that leads to transformations in my life and how the world discloses. I now come back and change person. I read the same Plato and I see a whole bunch of new stuff again and it keeps cycling. And so Plato remains. It doesn't mean that I think everything in Plato is perfect or that I don't have deep criticisms of Plato. It just means that I find Plato an ongoing, inexhaustible source of the affordance of the cultivation of wisdom and self-transcendence. I know that Sevilla and her community find that in person and I take that very seriously. So I think it is clear that there are people who are already living from that text as a sacred text and that uh, they, especially Sevilla, are contributing significantly to the creation of this these communities and therefore deep responses to the meaning crisis. So I take what she's doing very seriously. And that means, at least by proxy, and also proximately, because I've only read some of the book, I think the, as, you know, let's take it for what it is, as a novel, but nevertheless, I see it as, a, you know, of significant value. Yes. Another thing I thought relevant a little bit is, is Martin Gurry, who wrote The Revolt of the Public, um, and basically he talks about how 
which really led to this. The problem is a crisis in authority. We can't trust our institutions. And what, yeah. what's led, led to that is the explosion of information. Partially, yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really taxed our relevance realization machinery. Right. But I, I think that's raw. I don't think that, I, I think it's incomplete. We also don't trust ourselves. Yeah. Right. We, we, we do lots of bullshit about trust yourself and trust your gut and all this romantic, ma- magical bullshit. But we really don't trust ourselves anymore either. Um, yeah. So it's not just authority. Right. But I want to pressure test on this real element because uh, what he says is, you know, what Walter Cronkite used to present was, was somewhat real, but it was, and it was packaged or convenient enough that you could understand it and we could all understand it, the same thing. We're all on the same page. And what you get when you get when you want the real is you get all this information and you can't really make sense of it. Is is part of what means to make sense of things to just I guess this is what you're saying relevance realization to ignore stuff. <laughs> well, well, so part of it is I mean is you know the, uh, the, some of the deep components of wisdom, which is to really cultivate in, in a highly rational fashion your powers of discernment and i mean something when i talk about rationality i don't mean good syllogistic reasoning that's to stick at just a propositional level i mean rationality that pervades all these kinds of knowing right the rationality of attention the rationality of the process of identity formation the processes of aspiration like you know uh agnes keller talks about uh, the, the the rationality that goes into your situational awareness such that you can reliably cultivate appropriate skills so i when i mean rationality i mean any systematic and reliable set of practices for overcoming self-deception i don't just mean good syllogistic reasoning so i want that to be made clear so what i want to go back to is we need you know that rational cultivation of discernment being you know to zero in on relevant information exclude relevant information resist bullshitting resisting the temptation to uh self-deception we need, you know, the rational cultivation of a capacity for deep understanding, deep communication. And then we need to, we need that individuation project to be counterbalanced by a participation project. My ability to discernment is dependent on your ability to discern and vice versa. And we have to stop pretending that that's not the case. So we've got to both be individually cultivating wisdom and, a co- and in a collective fashion, we have to be cultivating something like dialogos again one thing i haven't yet heard unless i missed him in in the series is is gerard and and, and i'm I'm curious Uh, your 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 thoughts on gerard are basically just the you know the idea that we're all mimicking or imitating each other and and all these resentments because of it and then we have to find the scapegoat and 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 then that is segue made how you think about sort of how we think about like diversity or difference versus unity uh, as it relates to to meaning um so I haven't read Gerard deeply. I've read, I watched the one book, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning or something. I can't remember the exact title. Um, I, I'm reading it. And I think his idea of malevolent mimesis, um, is something that needs to pay attention. We need to pay attention to. There's a reason why one of the commandments was to not covet, uh, as he famously has argued. And we've understood that just as desire and it's not. And so we have, we, 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 this is again, this is what I mean by we have to bring back the perspectival knowing. We cultivate and grow our metacognition by internalizing the perspective of others. And so that can be, therefore, a process of respect and admiration. But of course, we can shift. We can go from the being mode of wanting to become into the having mode of wanting to have your perspective and have what you have. It's a fundamental kind of modal confusion. And so I think it's important to 
again, bring back um, how much uh, perspectival knowing um, is operational in our cognition, how important it is, and how much we become who we are through other people. And so, although I didn't directly talk about Gerard, I did talk about what I think is ultimately the answer he would be committed to uh, because of his adherence to the Christian framework, which is this is why I talk so much about the Christian notion of agape. Because the idea of agape is about trying to re-understand in a profound way how deeply person-making our perspectival caring and our participatory knowing are. It's a kind of loving that makes other people and turns non-persons into persons. And I think that that's sort of, I mean, St. Paul said it's the most excellent way, right? Um, I think that's the deep way in which we bring back, again, what I was talking about, that normativity that deeply couples together the way I'm becoming a person and you're becoming a person. And agape is about recognizing and celebrating and bringing to the forefront the perspectival and the participatory and the way it is never just an individual or just a collective project. It is a, it is a deeply both project within which we make persons within communities of persons because you always have those two together. You never have a person without a community, and you never have communities without persons. Yeah. It's interesting. So one grandma I heard someone say is basically, the more you are part of a community, the less you are an individual, or the more you are an individual, the less you are part of community. Is, is that just the wrong grammar? Yeah. I think, I think bringing in a zero-sum grammar to understand this stuff, which translates everything into adversarial rather than seeing the inherent need for creative tension. It, 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 yeah, I think that's just fundamentally the wrong grammar. I don't know what it would mean to become an individual except through a community. And I don't know what it would mean to have a community except to have within it people who were genuine persons. Yeah. So the innovation of E-prime or nonviolent communication on, on grammar, as far as I understand it, is instead of saying, Eric is lazy, or, you know, Eric is this, Eric, you know, they are this, you, you use verbs, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, relate things specific to time and context for sort of, you know, static judgments. I'm excited for more grammar innovations. Um, so there, there's more. I mean, you, Peter Lindbergh has what he calls the reverse debate. Whereas before I say anything, before I do any of that, I say, I'm going to make sure I've understood you. I'm going to describe back to you what you've said until you agree that that's what you're saying. I'm trying to practice this myself with people. Right. Not so much of what we've been doing, because this has been more of an interview situation. But when I'm in dialogue with people, right, that, you know, do, have I understood you? And only once I've got an agreement that I've understood you, then I start to make statements. And then I don't make statements about I don't make sort of statements as like, like you say, X is the case. I say, I see that you're uh, one implication of what you're saying is this and this and this and this. And so. I put myself in, right? I take agency and responsibility for the implications rather than pretending that I am somehow the mouth of mouthpiece of God speaking, right? The truth of things, which I find, uh, again, very, very, very pernicious. And it's on all sides uh, of these discourses. People are, this is just X. Well, no, right? First of all, did you understand me, right? And secondly, if you if we agree that you've understood me, you know that's that is a set of implications. Let's talk about it. Is that the right set, etc.? 
And then the last thing this makes me think of is Robert Wright, who wrote this book, Non-Zero, which basically the thesis is that history has some sort of direction, he would uh, claim, and it, it, the direction is um, towards rising social complexity. And we've had to morally progress to be able to handle the complexity. So one example would be the Martin Gurry line, the exploding of information. Well, we have to advance our grammar to be able to make sense of and coordinate amongst this information. I guess, does that resonate at all with you? Uh, and do you think that, is it constructive to thinking that history has a direction, if at all, or that this concept of social complexity and moral progress to meet this advanced, increasing social complexity? Uh, I think, okay, so there's two theses. One is that we are seeing increasing social complexity over time. I think that's true. That's, I think that's separable from the thesis that there's some teleological drive within society. I mean, it could all just collapse, uh, and that would just thwart the idea that there's a telos there. Um, and, and complex societies have collapsed before, so I don't think there's anything inevitable um, about complexity. But is it, or is it a fact right now, and is, it, is complexity increasing and accelerating rate? Yes. And I would go further. One of the things that I'm critical of, although Wright perhaps is extending the notion, but I'm very influenced by Susan Wolf's work again here, that meaning can't be, a meaningful life can't be reduced to or identified with leading a moral life, even a morally exemplary life. Uh, that meaning, the meaning-making machinery and, and the morality machinery are not the same. And I think that human beings, I, I say this very carefully, and I, I'm asking for charity on the part of your listeners, I think human beings are primordially meaning-making or meaning-cultivators and only within, you know, an intelligible agent arena relationships do they then come under moral normativity. I think the meaning-making is, to use a Heideggerian term, more primordial. And therefore, that has all, that also needs to ratchet up in order to deal with the complexity, not just our moral sophistication. I think our meaning cultivation, existential sophistication needs to ratchet up as well. How should we think about uh, what we understand about evolutionary biology in terms of our, you know, like for example, where, you know, we're, we're naturally envious. Do we, do we cater to that, factor that in, or do we try to overcome that? Or how do, how do we think about our sort of self-awareness of what we tend to do as humans? And then when we sort of, you know, design for that um, versus, you know, the fact that, there are people there who have a lot more than that. We get jealous, even though we have a lot. Is that something you think about designing for it or overcoming it? Well, I mean, I, I think we should, we need to pay very careful attention to the deep continuity between our cognitive processes and principles and our biological processes and principles. I think that's something that came out of Varela and has been developed expertly by the work of Evan Thompson and others. Um, and that deeply informs my work and people, if they want, they can see how that, uh, how, how that unfolds within uh, the series. I think we need to pay attention to our evolutionary heritage. I don't know if it's as good as it thinks it is. <laughs> I mean, um, my, my son's a, a biologist, and he tells me that uh, a lot of the arguments made by evolutionary psychologists are very suspect from a biological point of view, and so I take that very seriously. So I do think we have to pay attention to that, but I think we, we, well, we fall prey to an essentialist simplistic bias because that's what we do with lots of stuff. And we can use evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, actually, not evolutionary biology, that's a mistake. Evolutionary psychology to buttress certain otherwise unjustifiable forms of 
uh, normally the demand we're putting on people or political uh, structures or, or social structures or socioeconomic structures uh, we're creating. So I would be very hesitant. I'm very hesitant, for example, of, I mean, Jordan, I think uh, some people told me he's softened on this. I, I don't know because I can't watch all of his stuff because there's so much, right? Jordan Peterson I'm talking about. But, you know, my son regularly criticizes his use of dominance hierarchies uh, from the biological domain as a way of trying to justify uh, sort of our current sociological, uh, socioeconomic structures. And, you know, and, and my son makes very good arguments towards that. And I think, yeah, uh, that makes sense. There's just, that's too big of a jump and much more work has to be done. So while I think we need to take it seriously, I'm not so sure that people who advocated are taking it seriously enough. Um, I think maybe there needs to be a lot more theoretical and empirical work done, um, much more careful and much more philosophical work because biology is going through a huge philosophical revolution right now. My colleague, Dennis Walsh at the University of Toronto and many other people, the philosophy of biology is really big right now precisely because biology is going through this huge, really significant change. And that means a lot of this evolutionary psychology is based on moribund or somewhat obsolete uh, biological theorizing. For example, I think, you know, Dawkins' notion of the selfish gene is, you know, that, that is now seriously questionable. And so I'm suspicious of a lot of the claims made by individual evolutionary psychologists. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to it, but it needs to be done a lot more carefully than I think it's being done. Awesome. In closing, I, I want to, uh, you to, to plug the, the series and what's to come. And so in, in closing, maybe as, as, as if you could give sort of the one-liner for the misunderstanding that people have on the meaning-making process, if, if that's too complex, feel free to ignore <laughs> that. And, and then what can people expect in the conclusion without giving it all away? Uh, you know, people should watch the entire series, 37 episodes now, you know, 50 you mentioned. What, what can people expect as you look forward? I guess the elevator pitch is uh, people uh, misunderstand meaning as a matter of belief, and it's not primarily about believing. It's primarily about uh, a deep kind of, of transformation, um, especially of your procedural, perspectival, and participatory note. So that would be the elevator pitch. Um, what they'll see in the series is a long historical analysis of how we got here, a considerable cognitive scientific analysis of the meaning cultivation machinery, and then a large part of reverse engineering. Well, how can we reverse engineer psychotechnologies so that we, as I've already tried to explain, can awaken uh, from the meaning crisis? Is that what the next series is about too? Uh, the next series is, like I said, the next series is more about this deep interpenetration between the meta-heuristic of wisdom and the meta-psychotechnology of dialectic and dialogue looking at it was what it was in the ancient world, how it unfolded so that we can deeply understand how it functioned, why it sort of disappeared, use that as a template, put it into dialogue with the current emerging, what we've been talking about, a lot of these new emerging practices so that we can deeply improve the reverse engineering of them. That's what the next series is about. After Socrates, the pursuit of wisdom through authentic discourse. Perfect. My guest today has been John Raveki. John, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been a great pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 